Hello and welcome to Hearing Our Stories, LGBTQ Plus Lives and the BBC. I'm Matthew Linford. I've been delving into the archives at the BBC, searching out material from features and documentaries about LGBTQ people from the past 50 years, which help us understand how queer people have been portrayed and their lives reflected by programme makers. In this podcast, I'll be sharing some of these clips with volunteers from two community groups. Opening Doors, a national charity that connects LGBTQ plus people over the age of 50, and London Friend, who work with younger queer people. So our contributors span the generations, and we're going to hear how they compare and contrast their own experiences and life stories with the archive clips and each other. I'll be playing them a selection of BBC output, including documentaries about equal marriage, bisexuality and HIV-AIDS stigma. Our first clip comes from a programme called Advice Shop, broadcast in February 1991, which offers help and guidance on the best way to come out to friends, family and in the workplace. In this extract, we hear a range of coming-out experiences, but how will they resonate for our contributors today? My mother actually told me, like, I mean, I did wonder, I thought when I was a teenager that I was the only one. She simply thought that um, um, being gay was a perversion and that it was her fault that I'd grown up perverted. My father was a, a sun reader um, and my mother listened to what my father had to say. I told my mum, um, I just said, um, you know, I said, I'm gay, and she said, when? And I said, when what? And she said, when are you going? She was really supportive, very supportive, and so were my brothers and my sisters and my cousins, the whole of my family, that love me for what I am. If I'm happy, they're happy. I think my parents went through quite a long period of acclimatisation, as it were. My mother once said to me that I think you become gay because it was too much on television, it was too much in the newspapers. I must have caught lesbianism at art school. I've never seen anything positive about gay people written in newspapers. One of my aunts told me that I was gay because I'd, I'd done too much washing up. I think at about the age of 13, I, I don't know where I got the word for homosexual from, but I became aware of it. I remember um, people telling anti-lesbian, anti-gay jokes at school and sitting there feeling humiliated but afraid to say anything in case people realised that I was one of them. For a long time, because the textbooks told me so, I thought that it was a, an adolescent phase. Uh, but I gradually realised that my adolescence was going on a long time. My parents um, definitely considered um, what the reactions of their friends were. Would I kiss a man on the street in front of the house? I mean, these are people they've known 25 years and they're cushioned by these friends within this racist society. I think rejection in, in terms of um, being black and gay is a quite, you know, quite an important issue. It's hard to give the racists another excuse to hassle us. If we are rejected from our families, um, you know, where do we go for support? I told my mother and my brothers and sisters all together, they were all sitting in a row on a couch, and I'm standing there addressing them, and said, I'm a homosexual. Um, 
It was important for personal, more personal reasons that I share this information with them. After all, they're my family. My grandmother came round in her car, picked me up and demanded that I should go and see a doctor. In Hindi, there's a, a term called samlangik sambandhan, which is men who desire men, women who desire women. As I went back to the car, um, my grandmother said, well, how did you do? And I said, well, he's given me some pills and I'll be okay next week. <laughs> I think when that person talked about the, the jokes at school and sitting there and feeling enraged but not saying anything, I think that that's a universal experience for queer people. It definitely was for me. Um, I know it definitely was for a lot of my queer peers. And it's sad to know that it hasn't really changed that much, that people still do make these judgments. But I do think there's coming out might be a bit easier nowadays. I, I know people who've had great experiences coming out with their parents, some people who don't even feel like they need to. It's becoming less of a, of a huge gesture nowadays, which is, you know, seeing clips like this, it's obviously very saddening to think about um, queer people living in that kind of environment, but. There's quite a, um, a spectrum of responses that um, they received when they were coming out, which I suppose is still a universal experience now because not everybody's going to have a great experience, everybody's going to have a bad one. And I think it's just um, wild that in 2022, you know, in 1991 even, they were laughing at some of the responses they were receiving and still now some of the responses that you see being um, talked about why people are gay. I mean, recently... Um, the conservatives in America said that if you watch Glee growing up that you're going to be gay now and just ridiculous <laughs> things like that. I mean, most of us probably are, but <laughs> that's not, <laughs> it's not the direct correlation that they think it is. And um, just, it's it was laughable then, I think on the receiving end of hearing something so ridiculous and we still hear such ridiculous things and we can still laugh about it. I think it's interesting what you said about Glee though, because I do think that, obviously Glee doesn't make you gay, but I do think that that, kind of explosion of queer characters and TV in the 2010s and the noughties has certainly helped a generation to see themselves and then to identify in ways that we probably didn't. You know, positive role models, positive characters, telling stories that you can look at and go, that could be me or I can aspire to be that. Yeah. There was nobody who actually said, uh, yeah, I told them and it was fine and, 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 you know, we're all sort of, and it was great. The, well, I, I was going to say that what, I loved about that was one, the diversity, two, there were so many people in there that I knew and they looked so young, but the black woman was the one person that had a positive experience. They spoke about that and I think that in the narratives around people of colour that we often are portrayed of having the worst experiences of anybody and therefore what people take from that is that black and brown communities are more homophobic and to see that person there saying my family was loving they embraced me they understood and it wasn't just my mum and dad it was my siblings it was my wider family that for me as a as a black man was my experience and one which is never told and I think that's incredibly powerful in that documentary and that's advice there but just simply knowing that other people had experienced similar to you yeah. um 
was useful because there were so few gay voices on the te- on the television back then. Just seeing somebody of your age, seeing somebody you might have met in a club, mm. seeing somebody of your your peers on the telly was like, wow, we're on the telly. Um, because when I came out um, a decade earlier than this, well, 82, um, there was no representation on the telly. So, yeah, this... And it's, it's odd that that uh, young man said that his dad said, oh, you've been turned by all, all this on the telly. It's like, there was hardly anything on the telly. <laughs> there have been a couple of programmes on Channel 4, which had only started, what, five years before this? So, four, what, six, seven years before this? Not very long. So it's not like there'd been decades of positive programming. Um, yeah, so a few positive programmes. And the son reader dad thinks that he's, he's turning his, <laughs> his son gay. Almost 20 years after this advice shop programme, an edition of Radio 4's Archive on 4 returned to the theme of coming out. Presenter Dustin Lance Black explored this rite of passage for LGBTQ people and asked whether it's still necessary in an era of greater social acceptance. In this clip, writer and performer Travis Alabanza argues that coming out might not be such an empowering moment for everyone. I lived with three other gender non-conforming trans people and I thought about when we all decided to walk together in our new neighbourhood to the shops, all in dresses and lipstick and makeup, and how that was an act of coming out and how that was an act of defiance and how that, yes, with that visibility and coming out came harassment and looks and danger, which makes it understandable why people might want to be in. But there was something left behind in the outness that felt powerful And it feels like they can't pretend that we don't exist. What I guess is conflicting with me about it is that then knowing the pain that comes with visibility of all kinds, there's so much validity in not coming out too. There's so much understanding in that as well. And there's so much variations of degrees. You suggest there's a pressure for everyone to come out and that perhaps that could cause harm. Definitely. I think the world is obsessed with Exposition, obsessed with confession, obsessed with us declaring, obsessed with us constantly knowing who we are at all points. And I think there's a danger and pressure in choosing the world to to say we come out because one, it's not safe for everyone. Some people come out and then are killed. Some people come out and are then bullied. And if our prerequisite for validity in our umbrella term for the LGBT community and all those identities, if the prerequisite for that is to be out, then that leaves so many different types of people in danger. If we change it to coming out to ourselves, then I'm sure this conversation around who's out becomes a lot larger. I'm sure lots more people will start saying, actually, I have came out. I'd say that coming out has power, but that's only if our definition of outness changes to allow its full power. I was pleased with that last one, Um, particularly when, when he said, it's sometimes dangerous for people to come out. Um, and he said, yes, you could be attacked and all the rest of it, but also it's dangerous yourself. You might do yourself harm because of the trauma of coming out. It's, you know, some, some of us have gone through an awful lot of trauma. Um, so I'm glad that, that there was, a, there was a, an element of, you know, oh, you're coming out or out the wardrobe, you know, it's great. It's not a party for, for many. And, and you, gosh, it would be lovely if it 
were, and actually if it weren't necessary. But for many, it's, it's the most frightening thing on earth. And you are quite convinced, well, I was quite convinced that I'd, my life would end. Somebody would either take it from me or I would do it myself, you know, that terminal. That last one kind of, yeah, that resonated. It isn't straightforward. Um, I was just going to say, like, I, I resonate with that as well. You know, I'm out in in most spaces, but there are some spaces where I'm not out. That is with my family, with my grandma, who's of a different generation and very Catholic Italian. You know, not even out of safety, out of fear of rejection. I think we spoke about that earlier. But I'm I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged and to be in many queer spaces very often and feel very comfortable within that to the point where... Um, my friends and I, you know, it's that progression, that domino effect of in high school where you're like, guys, I think I, I might like girls. And then everybody's just like, oh, yeah, me too, me too, me too. And then you realize you're all stuck together because you're all queer and you, and you have that in common, that safety. That To the point where now I get almost surprised when people feel like they have to come out to me. I'm just like, yeah, okay. Like I thought, you know, I'm kind of... I'm surprised when people are straight, if anything, because of my friendship group. You know, somebody tells me I'm straight and we're like, ooh, okay. Like, take a little step back. But, you know, again, it's the, it's the stark contrast of, this, of the spaces in which I can be queer and myself and the spaces in which I can't, which thankfully are very few. Yeah, I really liked what was said um, at the beginning um, in terms of you don't just always come out once, you know. I think it's such a false idea that, you know, you've just come out once and all of a sudden you never have to come out again. But sometimes there are years in between coming out between each person because of what the response was between one person or you need to take yourself aback to reevaluate, or maybe your identity changes within the time that you came out with the first person. Um, and the, I always consider being, like, queer, you have so many different doors, you sometimes come out with your gender then maybe your sexuality or vice versa or how you present to the world if you you might want to be feminine or masculine and all of these ways are coming out um and sometimes they're spoken sometimes they're not but there are so many different layers of being queer under the umbrella coming out every time to a different person will cause different responses and safety levels but also um it shouldn't have to be necessary because you shouldn't have to evaluate um each person's reaction i mean 20 years ago when I was first um when I was growing up that was coming out parties were a thing so that's what a lot of which is just crazy to think when we're watching 1991 and then coming out parties were a thing and now it's we don't want to have to come out so even just in my lifetime there's been a progression of how you celebrate coming out and why you should celebrate coming out um and I'm I'm very much in the same lane as Dustin Lance Black in coming out to yourself is like one of the hardest things you have to do anyway so even having to verbalize that to other people shouldn't have to be the hardest part of the journey it's not something you owe to someone you're welcoming them welcoming them into something about yourself if anything rather than exposing yourself and that's sometimes what it is an exposure I'm delighted to hear that there are coming out parties. Makes it sound like some like debutantes, doesn't it? There's that coming out. Um, whereas coming out in my younger days was very much a sort of an act of, of political defiance, of bravery, of, um, you know, I'm here, I'm queer, and 
I don't care if you like it. Um, it was it was a dangerous step to take, and it it you know it is it's not a one time thing. You're coming out all the time, and it's not just when you're young. You know there are people who. You know, because they sort of look like sort of shriveled old men, nobody knows they're queer in the nursing home. Are they going to tell their carers that they're, that they're queer? I mean, I think it's really complex. I mean, obviously, in that it, it's generational, it's, evolu- it's evolving all of the time. And so for some people now, coming out is still a statement. If you're, if you're trans or you're non-binary, you, you're making, you know, you're, you're declaring who you are to the world, whether or not we use that term coming out anymore, but you're saying, this is who I am, this is how well want you to view me, to love me, to accept me in this world. And I think with our, with our queerness, whether we're, we're, we're cis gay men or cis lesbian women, we're non-binary, we're trans, we're still making those statements. I'd love to live in a world where that wasn't necessary, but you need to burn it down because we live in a heteronormative world where everybody's always gonna make those assumptions that you're one thing. And I'm not sure if we're at that utopia yet. One programme format that became particularly prominent across TV channels in the late 80s and 90s was the talk show. A studio discussion with a live audience, engaged in vigorous and often confrontational debate, a sort of social media of its day. One long-running example was Esther, presented by Esther Ranson, which went out at tea time on BBC Two. This edition, from March 1995, focused on the stigma of HIV-AIDS, which was very real, as this studio guest explains. Well, I began to get sick very quickly after finding out I was HIV, and I was working for a well-known hotelier's, and I was an assistant restaurant manager, no contact with food, nothing. And when I started to get sick, I was in hospital, and my restaurant manager, who was also gay, came to visit me in hospital. And it happened to be the Broderick Board, which had just had a blaze of glory and fame because it was the first aid unit in Europe. And he went back and sacked me that day. Explaining why? Um, I was a health risk. Were you a health risk? No, I had nothing to do with the kitchens. I was an assistant restaurant manager. I dealt with the customers. I sat them down. I asked them if they wanted some wine. And I sent some other person to go and deal with them. My job was just a front man. Had had anything to do with food. Would you think that he was? Wait a minute. Here's somebody. A health risk, do you think? Yeah, well, I think he probably is. I mean, John himself has said that uh, he wasn't uh, serving food and all the rest of it. I personally wouldn't want to work with somebody who has AIDS. My concern is that there may be some sort of hybrid disease, which we don't know about yet, for which there's been an incubation period, and which may come out in the future. And I just, I'm not homophobic at all. Um, so why, um, why are you in the studio if you think I'm such a risk? Because I just wanted to make my point that I'm not prepared to work with people and just to explain but as you're a willing member of the put, public... But you're willing to put your life at risk to make that point. You're coming into the studio and you're saying I'm not going to have anything to do with That's you right, because, because you have AIDS. That's right, because at the moment I don't have to share But I'm willing to come on television let's, let's and tell you that. Let's be very clear. What, what sort of facilities do you think it's dangerous to share? Well, um, I know that, once again, people will say that if you share a plate, you share a toilet seat... There's no problem, and I, and I accept that. But it's purely the risks which are unknown at the moment, which may come out in the future, um, for, or it may be, the, for example, if you cut yourself and you happen to be um, uh, perhaps not quite as uh, wary of, of, of putting blood about as, as, as perhaps you ought to be, 
and if I happen to have cut myself, just things like that is just the risk of, of, of getting sorry, AIDS. I, I, I worked I have... in a restaurant. I yes. had to be trained to work in that restaurant. Right, everybody wants to join in now. Go on. How does this gentleman propose to get this gentleman's blood off a plate into his bloodstream? Well, I think you were... <laughs> I think he was saying if, if John would cut himself, and he would cut himself, and got some of John's blood onto him, is that not a risk? This would sound like a conspiracy. So you don't think it's likely? No, you don't think it's possible? I think the risks are minuscule. Right. What, what do other people think? You're, you're a doc... Yes. Let me just ask this doctor. What do you think? I, the, the risks are indeed minuscule, but I think the, the, this man's reaction is very illuminating about the general climate of irrational fears that has been created around the AIDS issue. We had the whole government campaign of tombstones and icebergs, which could not have been better designed than to create a tremendous anxiety and fear around AIDS. Well, let me see. If, is that why you feel... <laughs> do you think that's just... why you feel the way you do? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you talked about the minuscule risk. The point is that there is a, a risk there. However marginal it is, there is a risk there. And I'm not prepared to work... I mean, it may be, for example, a small office, in which case maybe the risk is enhanced. Um, can you sympathise with that at all, John? Can you see no, the point? No, I can't. No, I can't. When we're looking at my circumstances, no, I can't. I was working in a restaurant. I was an assistant mm -hmm. restaurant manager. I basically take somebody's order... What am I going to do? Stab myself and bleed all over them and stab them as well? I mean, what are you saying? I remember being in high school and having debate classes and they'd have things like, should abortion be legal? I don't... We should move away from debating these things because these are human rights that we're talking about. You're taking away someone's right to work because of their health condition. Like, we, we can't have these programs. And I certainly... I do still see them nowadays, unfortunately. They're more on, like, YouTube and, and the far-right channels and stuff like that. But that, that's absolutely crazy. No, I, I don't think we should be having these kind of debates. And I'd like to put that I did that in quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> They're infuriating, those programs. They yeah. just, just annoy people deliberately. I mean, they're there to be provocative. They're there to grab an audience and make people get all outraged on whichever side. And you, they're not there to solve a problem. They're not there to make things better. They're just there to promote a programme and promote the people who are hosting them. They're dreadful things. I don't think so. I, I think if you put it in the context of... Because uh, I remember when AIDS first came out, uh, and I remember even I thought, well, I don't know anybody who's got it. So... In a way, that was a bit elucidating. The other thing I would say about that programme is that everybody, and Esther Ransom, was actually debunking. And it was the guy who, was, um, who didn't want to work in the same office was the one who came out as ridiculous. Everyone was applauding the people that were pro the, the AIDS guy, the, the, you know, the, the person being interviewed. So I, I didn't think it was such a bad thing. I mean, I agree that the format of those kind of programmes, and I like the fact that it's called, you call it the social media of its day, is hugely problematic. And, and it, it's kind of set up to be gladiatorial, right? It, it, that's the whole thing. But as somebody who's, who's positive and also kind of works in health promotion, 
why I think those programs are important because they are opportunities to debunk myths. They are opportunities to challenge that in the same way that we might use social media today when somebody is bigoted or has misinformation for people to go on with their lived experience or to correct that information. So somebody like John, who was an amazing HIV activist himself, to be there putting his truth front and centre looks really, really well you know, looks really healthy, is they're put in a position, so they're putting forward a picture of what HIV looks like at that time, and this is the mid-90s, before treatment, so you're seeing a healthy man. If you'd shown that 10, five or six years ago, it would have been a very different picture. And I think it also reminds me, there was a Kilroy documentary that was really similar, which was completely just filled with bigots, whereas this, you've got a couple of people going, actually, the risk is minuscule, and given time for that, some misinformation is corrected there. So... Whilst the format is problematic, these are opportunities to educate people, to move the conversation slightly forward a little bit. Looking at this as a historical document, though, it very much documents the kind of debates that were going on at the time, the kind of uh, ignorant comments that you would hear in the pub, in the workplace. I think what's frightening about that, and I think we've seen this in nearly all of the clips that we've looked at, is that whilst things have changed, things very much stay the same. And there have been surveys done very recently into HIV stigma, where people go, I know there's not a risk, I know it's not bad, but there's a minuscule risk, and I'm not prepared to take that minuscule risk. And I think we see that in all of the stuff that we've watched, that we've come on leaps and bounds, but there are still these pockets which are highly bigoted, really ill-informed, and they carry that on, and I'm not sure we can do about that. And it's also Esther, isn't it? I mean, it's about the presenter as well. Yeah, Esther, Esther Ransom was credible. She was trustworthy. She was warm, friendly. She did programs which people are like, oh, I trust Esther. She set up Childline. So when you look at that, you're like, well, okay, well, if, if Esther can sit in a room with somebody with AIDS and be nice to them, it's kind of like that Princess Diana thing, then it's okay a little bit. And it, it does move the needle slightly forward. I not wholly convinced because I think the people that would watch that are people who are already convinced of what they believe anyway and that is a you get the polarised argument and you're talking to a polarised audience and there's very few that would change their minds on a programme like that because it's so confrontational It's it's like question time I think Britain loves the, the sort of idea that anyone can be in the audience, so anyone's point of view is put across, but in reality it isn't. I mean, even with the people on the stage, I mean, the same with Jeremy Kyle, it was often working-class people on stage, and the whole point is that we're meant to ridicule, laugh at them, question time, yeah, everyone from the nation, but it's those who aren't working from nine till three who are able to go there, and they specially select the audience so that it's apparently demographic but then they pick on the people who are specifically asking the questions that they've approved prehand and the same with all of these chat shows they don't challenge the audience might but the person who's absolutely you're meant to be trusting buying into is meant to just be listening to everyone's views which I just find not just dangerous for the people viewing it but the people on the stage I mean they have to listen and hear everything's being saying without any challenge from authority I just I find it so disruptive Representations of bisexuality are largely absent in documentaries and features from the BBC archive. But here's one notable exception heard on Radio 4 in 2011. In It's My Story Getting By, radio presenter and musician Tom Robinson 
investigated attitudes and perceptions of bisexuality and here questions an academic researcher about the emotional nature of male-to-male friendships and relationships. You found in your studies, I think, that um, some men who didn't think they were bisexual or had any bisexual potential at all actually did have that potential when it was pointed out to them. Could you tell us a little about that? Their emotional relationships with other men, which they often privilege over their heterosexual relationships with their girlfriends. They call these bromances, sometimes a man crush. Um, but these were men who were saying that my, my, my best friend, he comes first. That girls will come and go, but my best friend will stay. That's kind of Bruce Springsteen territory, though, isn't it? You know, me and my buddy versus the girls come and go. You, you must have been in the music industry. <laughs> you could say that. Um, and I think there's a, then perhaps there's a return to that. Um, but yes, these men would say that, um, look, part of sexuality isn't just what you're sexually attracted to, but what it's you're emotionally attracted to as well. And they would say, I'm emotionally attracted to guys, therefore part of me must be, bi- must be bisexual, even though publicly they wouldn't describe themselves as bisexual to their friends. But I can't help feeling Professor Anderson's optimistic findings may not necessarily apply right across the country. We took soundings of our own on the subject of bisexuality in Manchester and in Newtown, Mid Wales. I don't really think it exists. I've just never met a bisexual guy before. As long as you're comfortable with yourself and it's what you want, then yeah. But some people do do it just because it's cool to be different and I think that's wrong. I don't think people rationalise and think, I want the best of both worlds. It may just be that they happen to feel that way. Guys are more kind of, um, there's more of a kind of target, isn't there? They're either one way or the other, whereas I think girls, the sexuality is more fluid. You're not bisexual, you're either gay or you're not. And if if people class themselves as bisexual, they're just really greedy they, with their personality. Chint out a lot of people are. Someone who likes both sex, um, they don't have to choose. They just enjoy both sets of people. So what, let them be the way they are. They appreciate everyone. Yeah. It's a search for attention. And I thought that's what they want. They didn't get enough attention either when they're kids or whatever, but that's what they're searching for now. That's my opinion on it. This whole thing of you're doing it for attention, it's cool to be bi. It's never been cool to be bi. I've never come out and gotten the response of, oh my God, that's sick. That's really cool. No, it's you're greedy. You you can't choose. You want attention. What kind of attention? Negative attention? I don't think anybody wants that. I think I think it was a bit fashionable at uh, some point in the, in the eighties. I used to have a um, a girlfriend who was straight who liked kissing me in public because it made her look popular with the boys. <laughs> oh, I loved it. <laughs> I would love to know more about like more bisexuality bisexuality visibility. I mean, there's so much biphobia within the LGBTQI plus community. It's insane i mean if you're rejected within the community you're meant to identify as and then externally that's pretty depressing to be honest with you i mean even bisexuality visibility day i would i would wager it's the least visible (laughs) when it comes to like um broadcasting and um conversations um and you know what even if you are bisexual and you do want to say yeah i'm greedy that's great for you but it's not really for us to be like you're so greedy you're a terrible person you can make a joke um, about it, but it's not. That's not the reality of what you actually are. You're bisexual, and that doesn't mean that it's fifty-fifty. It doesn't mean that it's ninety-ten. It could be no percentages. It could be all the percentages. 
And it's really not for us to really be questioning because also that changes as well, how much you are, as I liked from the previous clip, it's an emotional connection. It's not just a sexual connection as to why any of us identify as any on the spectrum. It's not um, about, you know, who we want to just sleep with. It's really about everything else and well as that. So I would like to know more, to be honest with you, but um, I don't think there is that much visibility, which is sad. First of all, I think it always makes me laugh when people say that bisexuals are greedy. You've not met a gay man. Do you know what I mean? Because the gay men that I know, we love sex and we're greedy. We love a lot of it. And I'm sure there are lots of women that I know that are exactly the same. Human beings, we just love it, right? So there's that. But I think that going back to the actual the documentary, I don't think it's the story. It's sometimes it's the telling of the story. And I'm sure that there are some bi people who would be really grateful that this is visibility. This is a conversation, because you said you looked through the archive and there was hardly anything. So I think the fact that these conversations take place, and I think we have to kind of understand, I understand what you're saying, that we want there to be positive stories. I don't buy that we're all great and we're all wonderful. There are some real problematic people in our lives, in our world, who are queer. But I think that the fact that the stories are out there, they generate conversation, they generate the debate. Because prior to this, it would have been, well, bi's are just greedy. Whereas a bisexual person being on that show, going, actually, my life is really fulfilled. It's really happy. I love this person. I love that person. The same way that we're having conversations today about trans and non-binary issues, yes, they're really uncomfortable. Yes, they're really difficult. But I know in 10 and 15 years' time, I hope that we will look back and we will go, those conversations were really painful, but we're here now. We've, we've moved forward and we won because we were on the right side of history in the same way that we look back on these clips and we go, those people were crazy 25 years ago and look at us now. So I think these things are really important, painful, but important. I think it would be really nice if that had been more about, well, how great is being bisexual? Turn it round. It's not a problem. How great is it? I thought, in a way, it was one of the most interesting uh, uh, things that you've played, because one of them was that uh, what determines w w what you are, um, you know, if you feel close to somebody and, you you know, even, even a man kisses another man, even though they're heterosexual. So what is the determinant? I remember thinking years ago, so what is the determining, fa determining factor that makes me gay? The other thing is that it, um, the, the programme opens up a spectrum, uh, of sexuality because now we label things but I think prior to labeling people as gay and what have you I think in olden times uh, then people just did things they did what they felt like whereas now everything is labeled so that was highlighting the spectrum and in fact not not pigeonholing yourself, although it's pigeon, pigeonholing you as being bi, but in fact, you know, there is a world of... I've sometimes wondered, because I always class myself as gay, and I've wondered whether I've restricted myself in, in current thinking um, that I would only have sex with men, whereas if I was uh, perhaps in a, lived in a different time, possibly I would do what I felt like with whoever, if somebody appealed to me. Now you've got like pansexual, which is obviously everything. So in a way, for me, I feel like bi was just 
the beginning of helping other people realise what they actually want, who they actually like. Because just because you're attracted, say, I'm, I don't know, I'm... I'm attracted to the same sex, but yeah, I, I prefer to have sex with, say, the the opposite. It, it's like, well, it helps people because this, again, it's, it is all about labels. But language evolves, you know, as we evolve as people, as our communities and our strength and the, how powerful and empowered we feel, it changes. And we, and we so, so 20 years ago, you never would have, 25, 30 years ago, you never would have said queer. It was a term of offence. And we reclaimed it. And as a black man for years, I never used the word queer because I saw it as something only white boys used, right? And so slowly over time, language has evolved and we catch up with it. There's certain language around race has completely changed in the past 20, 30 years and it continues. Our last clip is from another Radio 4 documentary broadcast in 2014 to mark the celebration of the first same-sex marriages in England and Wales. In... Gay Rights, Tying the Knot, the Reverend Richard Coles looked at how gay marriage became the defining issue of recent years, despite not being on the radar for the pioneering gay and lesbian rights movement in the 60s and 70s. Will our contributors agree that this is the last campaigning milestone? Does equal marriage mean that the love that dared not speak its name is now singing from the same ribbon-bound order of service as everyone else, accompanied by the whirring sound of past generations of activists revolving in their graves? Not, according to Claire and Harriet, in the audience at Morley College tonight. They're getting married in May. We've been together almost 14 years. Well, by the time we get married, we'll be together 14 years, pretty much, to the day. We're getting married actually in the West London Synagogue, in the um, Synagogue Hall. And then uh, we will have a blessing in the synagogue itself, and then we'll have a party down in, in Battersea. But isn't getting married in some sense colluding with an oppressive institution? Marriage has a lot of bad connotations for women in the past, I think, but I think for gay people to be able to take the institution and change it and take it into the 21st century is really amazing. Tell it not in Gath, but I sometimes wonder if gay couples might in fact rescue the institution from the nonchalant disregard in which it's held by many conventionally married people today. What makes a marriage? Is it something fixed or open to change? And what kind of change? Well, who knows how things will look in another generation. I think my mm. ear is quite tuned to tokenism or cant on this mm. issue, and I don't yeah. hear either tokenism or cant no, in the pronouncements of David Cameron, mm. Ed Miliband or, or Nick Clegg. We've won in that political class and for this generation. We've won. that me and Mark were pulling faces at each other during that. <laughs> well, we won the battle. We certainly didn't win the war. I mean, that's for sure. That wasn't the war I was fighting. Me neither. <laughs> I certainly wasn't fighting for gay marriage. When I was fighting for gay relationship rights or homosexual relationship, whatever you want to call them, lesbian and gay relationship rights, it was probably the terminology that we were using in the 80s and early 90s. I didn't imagine that we'd ever win... Uh, full marriage equality, and I wouldn't have wanted it. We wanted recognition that, that I mean, in, in the late 
um, 80s and early 90s, there were men, um, very many young men dying of AIDS and they were, they were excluded from their partner's bedside because they were no relation. Um, they, yeah, they, they had no say in their partner's treatment because they had no legal right. Um, so I was fighting for those rights. Um, and I got civilly partnered the year before this um, broadcast um, because I, I feared they were going to make gay marriage compulsory and get rid of civil, right, uh, civil partnerships. Um, and I didn't want to be married. That's not what I was fighting for. I, I wanted to be legally the partner of, of, of the woman I've been with for, well, we've been together for 28 years now. Um, we didn't want to be married with all of that heterosexual nonsense of being given away by a man as if you're a piece of property ha being handed from one to another. Oh, don't you just love her? I think she's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's not the, the gay rights that I was campaigning for when me and my then partner dressed up as brides in 1986 to go on Pride because that, we felt we were being so subversive, two women in bridal outfits. We were challenging gender norms around uh, couples and around uh, lesbians. And you look at the, the picture of us now and we look like oh, a couple getting married on a Saturday. It's like, oh, God, <laughs> it, looks, it looks conventional now, whereas it, we were being so subversive back then. Uh, yeah, I'll shut up. <laughs> it's, so, it's so great to hear that because I think the general narrative around... Um, queer generations in the past is that what they were fighting for was gay marriage. And so, like, you know, I, I know a lot of people, a lot of conservatives as well, who are just like, okay, you got it now. Like, are you That's happy? The thing. Yeah. That, that was exactly the thing with, 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 with the Tories given us gay marriage, right? It was, you've got it, be satisfied. But I think what, for me, as a gay man, it was also about sanitizing us. So with the advent of gay marriage, and I, you know, I, I welcome it, and I'm really glad that my friends want to have night. I've been to lovely gay weddings, and they're great, and all the rest of it. You know, we throw great weddings, but there was also something about the sanitization of our sexuality and our identity. One minute I was picking up gay times and attitude, and I was seeing hot boys and sexy clubs and blah blah blah. Next thing I was seeing here are wedding bands and here are this and all that. So all the commercialization came into it, and and, and what concerned me was that whilst we have this heteronormative institution, that many of us were kind of getting rid of the fun, sexy, enjoyable, wild stuff that we did. When I find out that a 23-year-old gay man is about to get married, I want to go, no, get to the sauna, have some fun, meet as many men as you can and get married in your 40s. You know, but that's me. But I recognise the importance of it and I recognise that people's, it's people's choice, right? And I think that's what we've always also been fighting for is the choice to do it. But it was the Tories that brought it in, so I buy them. I, I have actually, I've read so many articles and like uh, heard interviews about the, in London specifically in the past few years, since uh, gay marriage, so many queer venues shut down. And it's because queer wasn't subversive anymore. Like they didn't need to go to queer clubs. Like they have marriage now, you know, it's, uh, as you said, the sanitization, it's like I one think, of us. I think they've got grinder now. <laughs> but but this is again to me this is about this there was the there was another agenda on this and and that was about trying to 
normalize things. Because the same discussion is held among heterosexual couples as well. You know, why do we want to get married? You know, what is it? And sometimes it is, it's linked to belief um, and the fact that everybody is different and not everyone wants the traditional thing. Me, I love a traditional wedding. I've had two of them. I mean, you know, <laughs> I love them. But it's, it's everybody's choice. And, it's, and regardless of your sexuality or your gender, that's what it should be about. That should be the discussion about how can we increase people's choice? Well, we'll allow, allow, we'll enable people to have uh, a marriage, same-sex marriage. You won't find anything about marriage in the, the Gay Liberation Front's manifesto. No, but then because it's not... That's not what no. they were fighting for. No, but it's choice. It's an element of choice. But I think it's really interesting what you said. At one point you brought up religion, and it is true. There are so many queer people that like yeah. do really believe in, in marriage as an institution and, uh, you know, people of faith, queer people, maybe Catholic queer people. I mm, don't know how many there are, but you know what I mean? Like, it maybe you know, this, this choice actually is... As much as I agree with it being some sort of agenda and the Tories and all of that stuff, I do also think it is good for people who do really, really believe in that to have that choice mm. to be able to do that. I, um, I, I, I'll just say that I think uh, Che triumphed in the end. Remember Che? We remembered it, we, we mentioned it at the very beginning, campaign for homosexual equality. Because there was gay lib and there was, for those that are young, there was gay li liberation front and there was Che and Che wanted to be as respectable as possible and the gay liberal front was sort of more up yours, we're going to do what we want to do. So it was a triumph of... of <laughs> the values of Che. But the other thing is, listening to you talk, it does rather remind me of going back many, many years when f friends of mine, uh, older friends of mine, used to say, oh, it was so much better when it was illegal because it was so much more exciting because you used to go to little, you know, used to, there was an anonymous door and they opened a door within the door and they used to look at you and blah, 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 uh, and let you in. So, um, so now we've got complete acceptance I welcome it. And as you say, it's a choice. You can have it or you can leave it. Having watched over a dozen extracts from the BBC archive spanning the decades, I wanted to get an idea of how our contributors would sum up this experience. What was it like seeing these programmes and has it changed their view of the BBC? I thought it was going to be grim and it hasn't. It's been, I mean, particularly, you know, you got, you got later on and it was more enlightened still. But even going back to the original, uh, you know, the representation and the balance. Uh, people criticise the BBC, but I, I would defend them. I think one clip that stood out to me the most was when we saw it last time, I'm not sure if you saw it as well, of, I think, the first Pride in London. Um, yeah, that one, and seeing how small it was but how excited everyone in that clip was and it was like this is the biggest turnout this is amazing and it's like looking at it now and it brought on a lot of discussions about the commodification of pride and the commercialization of pride you know like the seeing the the barclays floats and the you know that kind of thing but it it just reminds you that 
pride is a protest and it still should be. And then talking especially to you today and everyone here just hearing how strongly, how strong those beliefs still are there and present. I've enjoyed the evolution of, of stories that have been told and I'm not sure if they, I don't think they're all balanced. I think there is bias in there and I do think that some of them are very much of their time. But I think that given the BBC is about telling the nation's story, it kind of represents that evolution across the nation. So we start with that problematic, problematic that really challenging program at the beginning where we're talking about homosexual women. And we come for, we, we end with, you know, a queer vicar, ex-pop star, talking about gay marriage to two lesbian women who are Jewish and about to get married in a synagogue, you know? And I think for me, that's just like, well, that, that tells our story, you know? And I think that obviously there's lots of holes and there's lots of gaps, but it does track these really important, significant moments in our history. And the BBC is never going to get it all right. No broadcaster ever is. But when I look at that, I can see that we've learned, that we've grown and we've developed. And it's because of programs like that that have empowered people like us to live our truth, but also our families, our friends, our allies, our work colleagues in the world to look at that and maybe think slightly differently. It may have entrenched some views, but I think that it's done what it's set out to do. I think it's so important that all of these stories... It'd be lovely if, if the BBC could um, repeat some of these, not in full, because <laughs> I don't think we could bear that, uh, but it would certainly be an educational tool for younger people, and I'm very keen to pass on our stories to younger people, because we did so, so much, and so many of the things that I hear still being an issue now, we were trying to fight then. Um, you know, it's like every generation is reinventing the wheel, um, we need to build on, on the, the work that's been done by the previous generations. And I always felt, um, when I came to London, I knew nothing about gay history. And I learned about it firsthand from the voices of people who'd been in the GLF um, or who had been out before the law changed in 67. Um, so I learned about it kind of firsthand. And those stories, they're still not known. You know, that they're only just being written down in books in the last decade, really. Um, I'm looking for the stories around the time that I was an activist in the 80s and 90s, and there's hardly anything in print. I was involved in Europride when there was 100,000 people in Brockwell Park, and I keep meeting people who say, what's that? Because it's not written about, it's not on the internet. You know, we did so much before the internet existed. And it's like now, if you're searching for things, you're not going to find most of what we did back in the day on the internet. And we need to pass on these stories. And I think the BBC probably has a part to play in that. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I hear you, but I started to challenge that a little bit because I think that we, we should also be telling those stories. And we, as, as older queer people... Mm -hmm. We, we, we have the platforms now. I don't have to rely on the BBC to tell my history. You know, I've, I've used Instagram and created a page. I've just put out a podcast, which is about black queer history. So I don't, I'm no longer dependent on the BBC to tell my story. Whilst I pay my licence fee, but I also pay my licence fee for Strictly. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm more interested in my licence fee going to make sure that's on every week than them telling the story of black queer life in Brixton. 
because I know that I want to be in control of that. I want to tell the story. So I think my challenge is one for us to tell those stories, for young people to engage, for us to work with young people to tell those stories. But then also the BBC, in terms of its duty to represent us, is I'm really interested in who commissions, are they queer? Who's producing, who's directing, who's the film crew, who's the sound person? Are they queer? Because that's when, and I know that as a black person, that's when race has been changed within these systems, is when we have a seat at the table. I can't ask a middle-class white person at the BBC to commission and represent my story properly. I need a black commissioner, producer, director to do that within the system. But outside of it, we now have the platforms to take control and tell our stories. So let's talk about getting that story about Europride onto a podcast and let loads of young people listen to your story. It's amazing. See, I'm not very technological. We'll do it. We'll do it. It'll, it'll be on <laughs> See, BBC. I need, I need younger people than me to help me with the technology. Listen, I'll get you on BBC Sounds. We'll oh, find a lovely. way. This session brought together younger and older LGBTQ plus people, sharing their memories, reactions and thoughts. So how have they found this experience of having a conversation across the generations? I don't have the privilege to come into contact with a lot of queer people from older generations, generations before me. And it's always just almost like emotional and so powerful to, to you know, hear, hear those stories and hear those perspectives. Because as you said, that's where the fight started. That's where it all began. And it's just, you know, such a beautiful and important thing to be a part of. Yeah, for me, I just want to say, well, thank you, because that's that's what I mean. Like, come in, don't get me wrong, I knew what I needed to know, I suppose, about the community. But then seeing all the clips and just obviously, like, when, when I heard... Was it Claire? Is it Claire? Yeah. yeah, when I heard your, your when it came to the gay right and how passionate you was about what you're really fighting for, and it makes sense because again, it's a label. People see gay uh, gay right for for marriage, but it's just labelled for that. But you're not looking behind the scene. You're not thinking about what you guys were actually fighting to just even get that label. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, it's just been wicked. It's been, it's been amazing. <laughs> Honestly, it's been amazing. It's been lovely meeting yeah. young people. Well, it's, it's, it's like you said. Are we don't get like we don't get the chance it's weird we don't get the chance to actually see different generations because i suppose when you're at it's like right the oldies are there the youngies are there do you know what i mean like everyone sticks in their groups but really me personally i get on better with older people than people my age and hearing the stories i just love history i just love hearing people's different stories i do i love it because at the end of the day you're not, we've all been through it, but in our own little way. And we've all gone different ways and different diversities to get to where we are today. I mean, I've loved it. And I mean, I'm, I love watching old stuff, which I think is always good, you know, and it gives an opportunity as older people to look back and also to think, okay, we've, we've come really far. You know, oh, we've we, come a long way. We, we, there are some places where we're still stuck, but there's lots of places where we have progressed, even if, even if that's us as individuals. We've, feeling we can live our own truth a bit more and be a bit more authentic. But what I really appreciate is being with younger people like yourselves because immediately I'm challenged. You've all said things this evening which have made me go, oh, do you know what I mean? Maybe I'm not right about that because we as older people can get quite stuck in our ways because we are in a particular space. And I really value that you throw things up which enables me to go away and go, yeah, Mark, you might need to just think about that just a little bit differently tomorrow morning. So I really appreciate and value that connection. Yeah, for me, it was uh, the, the first uh, get-together was a possibly horrifying trip down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> 
but the second one I was looking forward to, to be with some young people, to see how people, how the world has moved on and how people think differently now. For me, it's been lovely hearing everybody's perspective and all their history and, and Rebel Claire over there, just love it. <laughs> and, you know, you've all been campaign, but for me, my watching some of those things was not so joyful and because I wasn't out there campaigning and whatever. I was hiding away and trying to conform. So some of those were very upsetting. Um, and it made me think really hard, and I've mentioned it a lot probably today. Um, we should be focusing on the celebration of diversity, whatever that diversity is, not just LGBTQ, but because it was the lack of that celebration which, okay, dramatic, ruined my life. Um, and it's only now that I feel able to celebrate and stick two fingers up to people if they have any problem with me. Yay. Good. Uh, yeah. Good. <laughs> so... Yeah, and I think the BBC, the BBC is not to blame as such because it was just in the time. But today there's no excuse. And, you know, I went to my first Pride this year. Yay! So, and I was overwhelmed by it. I mean, aside from commercialisation of it, it was just a celebration of life and the colourful life that everybody individually could bring please if there's a plea to the bbc please focus on celebrating diversity and how much it can bring to the world that's a good note to end on oh what was really good. <laughs> what's been really revealing about this project is hearing from LGBTQ plus people about the impact that the BBC through these programmes has had on their lives and perceptions. As we've discovered, historically some individual programmes from the archives are challenging, relying on stereotypes, lacking in empathy, sometimes reluctant to show positive portrayals. But when we look at the arc of queer history since the 1970s, the significant milestones in the struggle for equality it's striking how BBC output has evolved to reflect the changing views of society and culture, making efforts to foreground lived experience and initiate discussion and promote visibility. In its centenary year, the BBC still faces many challenges. As our older volunteers testify, the BBC might be the go-to source for news and factual coverage – Yet in striving to achieve balance and highlight all sides of the debate, the younger contributors point out that the BBC has been accused of transphobia and transphobic reporting. Aside from news, the BBC is not the obvious source of queer content, given there are so many other alternatives, from LGBTQ-produced podcasts to big, glossy queer dramas and reality shows on streaming platforms. Perhaps where the BBC is most visible is the way it integrates LGBTQ plus representation into the mainstream output. 
gay, lesbian, trans and drag queen characters on EastEnders, same-sex couples dancing together on Strictly. Perhaps this is what people will continue to pay their licence fee for, and what public service broadcasting looks like in the 21st century. My thanks to the contributors from London Friend, Ludovica, Issy and Tommy, and Mark, Claire, Tony and Angela from Opening Doors. Thank you.